0: You know, again, sort of feeling like giving birth like broke me open. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it kind of released some of that anger and made me mm-hmm. like more soft and vulnerable and, you know, just less, less angry and less kind of, um, you know, I don't have such tightly balled up fists anymore, even when mm-hmm. I'm critiquing structures and systems that are harmful.
1: Hey. Welcome to Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now, and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today I'm talking to anti-diet dietitian Christy Harrison. Many of you will know Christy already. She is host of the Food Psych podcast, author of Anti-Diet and the forthcoming book, The Wellness Trap." This conversation is one that I've really been looking forward to sharing. Christy tells us all about what life has been like as a new mother who is nourishing two babies, her human baby and her second book, The Wellness Trap. Krista gives us a little peek inside the new book, sharing some of the research that she's uncovered about the wild, wild west of the wellness world and how a lot of the really harmful wellness, diss and misinformation really capitalizes from parents who are just trying to do the best for their kids. We also talk about her experiences with milk feeding and then going on to Introduce solids with her baby and how that has made her reconsider some of the things she says about intuitive eating being a birthright. I think you'll be really interested in hearing what she has to say about that. And finally, I asked Christy about a post that she shared on her Instagram, which said, Giving birth broke me open in every way imaginable. And although this was a really tough and pretty emotional conversation, It felt like the conversation that I wish I had heard about birth, rather than the conversations about whether you should, I don't know, shave or wax, which are real articles that I've seen in parenting publications in 2022. But anyway, just a heads up that we do talk about traumatic themes in this episode around birth and the early weeks of recovery and medical trauma. So if you aren't up to hearing them right now, then I trust you to do whatever you need to do to look after yourself. We'll get to Chrissy in just a moment, but first of all, I wanted to let you know that you are listening to the long edit of this episode. From October, I'll be publishing a shorter edit here in your podcast player and a special long edit for paid subscribers of the Can I Have Another Snack podcast as a little bonus for supporting my work alongside weekly discussion threads, my dear Laura column, and loads of other fun perks on Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. You can head to laurathomas.substack.com to subscribe. It's £5 a month, or £50 for the year. And if that's inaccessible for you, please email hello at for a comp subscription. I'm keeping all the content on Can I Have Another Snack free for the month of September and turning on the paid community features and paid subscriber only columns from October. If you value this work, you can help keep it sustainable by becoming a paid subscriber. And last thing, if you enjoyed this episode, I would really, really appreciate it if you could support me by rating and reviewing it in your podcast player and maybe even sharing it with a friend. It makes a huge difference to a new podcast. You can find a full transcript of this episode over on Substack. Again, that's laurathomas.substack.com. And I would really love it if you wanted to leave a comment over there to let us know what you thought of the episode and to keep the conversation going. All right, team, here's Christy. Christy, I'd love if you could tell us who or what you are nourishing right
0: now. It's such an interesting question for me at this moment because I feel like I'm nourishing two very important and very different things. The number one one being my baby. Um, I'm breastfeeding and also giving her solid foods and so like really literally nourishing a human being, you know, and it's like incredible and overwhelming sometimes and feels like a huge responsibility and you know, is so fraught in some ways with diet and wellness cultures, I'm sure we'll get into. And so, but it's also like beautiful and just such a beautiful bonding experience. And I feel really lucky to be able to breastfeed because, it, I mean, many, many people aren't. And I didn't think I was going to be able to at first because I had a traumatic birth experience and wasn't able to breastfeed right away. And so the fact that it like ended up happening at all is kind of a miracle. And so it's been like this beautiful bonding journey of feeding her and just getting to spend that time cuddling and, you know, having time together. But just in the past couple of weeks, she started biting, <laughs> She got, got a tooth and, uh, it's like, ugh, it's brought up so much because, you know, it, it hurts. It scared me. I sort of reacted and then she reacted and cried and, you know, it's, it. And then I got scared and started to feel really anxious every time I was feeding. And so this beautiful bond that we've had that I don't think I even fully appreciated while I was in the easy part and, you know, sometimes would be like looking at my phone and like doing other things while feeding her. Like suddenly I'm like, no, like why did I spend all that time, you know, not paying full attention, not being fully in this moment when now it's going to be taken away from me, you know, potentially soon in a way that feels like it's too early And yet, you know, we have, we have fortunately been able to consult with a lactation consultant and she's helped a lot in terms of, you know, figuring out a better position and better strategies to kind of alleviate the teething pain so that she's not biting on my boob. And so, you know, it's, it continues, our breastfeeding journey continues, but it's, it's starting to feel like this precious thing that, you know, the sand is slipping through my hands of of the time that we have together.
1: So, no, I just, I, I really. That resonates so much because we also went through the biting stage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we were able to overcome it now. Two and a really bit good. years, so we're well. still going. Oh my um, god, that's amazing. yeah. But I, 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 I hear what you're saying as well. Just in that, you know, that those. I don't want to over romanticize breastfeeding because mm. I, I feel like that's a danger that we can run as well. But I do kind of do try and soak in as much of it as I can when I'm you know when I'm able to there are definitely times that I just want to check out his call on my phone totally. and at the same time you know he's getting older I'm trying to sort of let him lead the way in terms of weaning and then there there are days where he just doesn't seem that interested and I'm like oh have we had our last feed <laughs> <laughs> um and then We had a a spate of illness recently and Mm -hmm. he was just like glued to me, just so attached. And then it's almost like the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm like, okay, are you ready to wean? (laughs) So yeah, I, I, there's, there's just so much emotion tied up in breastfeeding, which is kind of what I'm, I'm hearing from you is that it's just
0: this, there's a constant tension with, with it. Mm -hmm. Totally. So much emotion and so much you know i didn't i i kind of naively thought i guess that like once we were over the really hard part at the beginning where i didn't have enough milk and we weren't even sure if it was going to happen and i wanted to try but i was also sort of like one foot in like formula and just like you know if we have to do formula it's fine i'm fine with that but wanting to like give it a shot with breastfeeding you know once we got through that and it was going strong and we had our latching down and our positions and she was getting more efficient at feeding and stuff. I was kind of like, okay, like, you know, this is how it's going to be for the next, you know, however many months. And I'd love to get to a year and like, we'll see how it goes and whatever. And so I, I didn't sort of reckon with the emotions, I think for a while, you know, it was probably a good four or five months there where it was just kind of easy, smooth sailing, which again, like so lucky because I know, a lot of people have ongoing struggles with it even at that point. But then now to be sort of coming back to like, okay, like what is it gonna look like to potentially wean her to formula or to stop feeding as much now I'm pumping some t- you know parts of the day and just like thinking about all those logistics and dealing with the emotions that come up and knowing that like hormonally too, there's shifts that happen when you you know shift over to even pumping more and um, I'm starting to kind of feel that and I'm like, okay, how much of this is just sort of hormonally my, my body is kind of telling me to be, uh, more sensitive or making me more sensitive and how much of this is like, you know, just kind of the, the natural emotions of like something beautiful coming to an end and something that like, you know, was always a little challenging too, in some ways. Um, it's just, yeah, there's just a lot, <laughs> a lot of. Mixed emotions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, we, we also had a, a challenging start and my supply was low. My baby was in the NICU for two weeks and the, the support or lack thereof, I suppose, around feeding in the hospital just really left its mark. And, you know, we, we went through the rigmarole as well of lactation consultants and, and getting help and, um, even, I would say it took us a good three, maybe four months to really get the hang of Mm. breastfeeding. And, and then, you know, it's almost as soon as you've got the hang of it, you're like onto something else. Oh, well, we're weaning now, um, or Mm. like we're introducing solids now and or, you know, I'm having to pump more. It's just such a, or there's a tooth. There's just such (laughs) a constant roller coaster of, of emotions. Um, Mm. And I feel like that's just a, a perfect metaphor for parenting in general. It's just up and down constantly. Christy, you said at the beginning that you have two things that you're nurturing at the moment. So what was the, the other thing?
0: Yeah. So the other thing is it's also big and just, but very different, you know, much more intellectual, which is my second book. I'm working on revisions for that now. And I wrote it while I was pregnant, like pretty much except for the first month of writing the manuscript or something. I was Mm -hmm. pregnant the whole time Mm -hmm. and then, you know, turned it in, went on maternity leave, came back and got revisions. And now I'm working on those and they're due in a week. So it's actually like down to the wire and I'm feeling pretty good about the, the structure of it. And it's kind of more fine tuning at this point, but that's been a whole journey as well, because the book is about wellness culture and Mm -hmm. it's called the wellness trap. And I look into, you know, how, in my first book, anti diet, I I posited that diet or that wellness culture is the new guise of diet culture. That
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: diet culture has cloaked itself as wellness in order to kind of evade people's growing um, suspicion about diets and sort of doneness with diets. And yeah. you know, diets now say they're about wellness and lifestyle change and all this stuff. But in researching the second book, I found. You know, I sort of always suspected there's so much more to it, that it's beyond just diet culture. And then, in fact, there's like this symbiotic relationship, I think, between wellness culture and diet culture, where diet culture uses wellness as its cloak and Mm. shield against criticism and to sort of make itself seem more important, because now it's not just about, you know, mere vanity, but it's about this noble goal of health and wellness. But also wellness culture has really incorporated the tenets of diet culture kind of wholesale into its own belief system. And yeah. I traced the history of that. It was really interesting to see like where that came from because the first use of the term wellness in the late 1950s by this man, Halbert Dunn, who was a public health professional – it's actually very similar in some ways to like what I would consider well-being and sort of talked so much more about mental health and social relationships and the importance of of those things. And, you know, there was almost nothing about food other than to say that we need enough of it in his in his major writings, his book. Um, and there was, you know, a tiny fat phobic statement, but it was sort of, you know, pretty minor in the the grand scheme of things kind of just talking more about the effects of of fat and you know so the, the original idea of wellness really wasn't built on diet culture i think in the way that it is now and i think the you know reasons for that shift had to do with a lot that happened in the 1970s around kind of the Hippie food movement and mm. sort of the emergence of like naturopathy and other alternative medicine, other alternative forms of medicine, um, kind of coming a little bit more into the mainstream, and you know people who were influenced by that, doctors who were influenced by that, sort of taking up the mantle of wellness, discovering this guy Halbert Dunn's work from a decade and a half before, and being like, yes, wellness, we love Halbert Dunn, we're gonna proselytize his ideas to the public. Mm and yet like really twisting them and infusing them with so much diet culture. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of became the version of wellness that that grew and went mainstream and that now is, you know, really kind of has really taken over. Um, and so that, you know, there's that piece of it where diet culture is really built into wellness culture now. But there's also so much more beyond diet culture that is sort of, related like clean beauty or clean housekeeping yeah. right this this mm-hmm. worry about what's in your products and what you're putting into or next to your body and and sort of irrational or maybe not irrational but over over blown over hyped kind of fears about chemicals and products and you know this sort of fomenting of fear among the public in order to sell products And then there's also the piece of the Internet, which I think is like the most fascinating (laughs) part of my book and research and has just hit the closest to home for me, too, is how the Internet and specifically social media and other algorithmic technologies that, you know, see how people interact with the content and then feed them more of that content in order to maximize engagement how those technologies have actually allowed mis and disinformation to proliferate and in fact they feed on that because mis and disinformation spreads farther faster and deeper than the truth and you know when things spread and go viral that tells the algorithm like hey we've got something here that is going to keep people engaged and so let's feed them more of that mm. that tells the the creators of that content that there is a market there right the creators of Mis and disinformation are able to monetize their content yeah. and capitalize on that, you know, social media driven spread. And then also the the, you know, way that social media and other algorithmic technologies affect our mental health by mm-hmm. keeping us engaged in those mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. you know, it really drives anger and hate and outrage. Those are things that are, again, engines of engagement. And so the algorithms feed us more and more of that. And it's really having a a detriment to people's mental health. It's driving diet culture, because again, the more extreme, the more sensational, you know, diets and things that promote eating disorders are the things that the algorithms pick up and feed people more of. And so you can go into and, you know, I think probably some some listeners will have heard of um, Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, who kind of Blew the lid off of some of this that Facebook knew its algorithms mm. were driving teenage girls, you know, mm-hmm. specifically on Instagram, um, driving teenage girls who showed an interest in quote unquote healthy eating deeper and deeper into extreme diet content and pro eating disorder content, and they did nothing about it, right? And and they are not forced to do anything about it under current U.S. law, and I think laws in other countries as well, but, you know, especially in the U.S. where Facebook and other social media companies, major social media companies are based, there's this law called Section 230. This is like so in the weeds, but it's so important. <laughs> I'm loving so it. important.
1: Th- I said to you off mic <laughs> that I was looking forward to your book because I I, I know it's going to be so Deeply and thoroughly researched, and I think all of these little rabbit holes are so fascinating. Um, so yeah, go what were you, what were you gonna say?
0: Yeah, so so section 230 is uh, informally known as the 26 words that created the internet. It's basically the law that gave rise to user generated content that allowed social media companies to even really come into existence. I think without section 230 we wouldn't have the internet as we know it today.
1: And what does it um, say?
0: And so it says that that Internet service companies or, you know, at the time it was this was in 1995 that it was passed. So, like, Mm -hmm. this was way before anyone conceived of of social media as it is now. But, you know, Internet service providers um, are not liable for they're not considered publishers of information that their users Uh. post. Right. And so that opened the floodgates for um, user generated content of all kinds and for platforms built entirely on user generated content that monetize it like Facebook and Instagram right. and Twitter and all of that. Right. Which, you know, kind of use our content as lures to get other people to look and and, you know, then service ads. And that's their way of making money. Um, and in the reason that Section 230 was passed is so interesting because in 1994, there was a defamation suit brought against prodigy services, which some people who are, you know, like elder millennials, like me and above might remember I've, that was like my first way of getting on the internet was my friend had prodigy and we went and like went into weird chat rooms or something. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember the weird chat rooms <laughs> Yes, sure. chat rooms were the thing. And so yeah, prodigy, someone, um, took to prodigy and defamed this, uh, I think it was a um, investment firm, Stratton Oakmont, which interestingly is portrayed in *The Wolf of Wall Street*. Leonardo DiCaprio ah. portrays their founder, who's like this awful, awful finance yeah. guy. Um, so someone had taken to Prodigy to defame Stratton Oakmont, and the and Stratton Oakmont sued them for defamation, or sued Prodigy for defamation rather. Um, it went up to the New York State Supreme Court and New York sided with Stratton Oakmont saying, yes, you were, you know, Prodigy is liable for having defamed you because they do some moderation of content on their forums. They have um, terms of service that you have to agree to. And if you're not, if you're in violation of those terms, you can get kicked off or your your content can get removed. And so, therefore, they're acting more as a publisher because they're not just you know, hosting the content, they're actually edit, exerting some editorial oversight in some way. Mm. So, like, if that had been able to stand or if that had gone to the yeah. U.S. Supreme Court and they had held it up, we would have a very, very different Internet today. Uh-huh. But instead, what happened was two members of Congress were really troubled by this because, they wanted moderation of content justifiably understandably you know they wanted some wanted companies to be able to moderate content on their message boards so that the internet wouldn't just become a sea of pornography which you Mm -hmm. know it is anyway but Mm -hmm. um but at least to be able to keep pornography off of certain channels that you know kids were going to be on and stuff like that so they proposed this amendment to the communications decency act of 1995 i believe that is section 230 and it you know it said that internet service providers can't be treated as publishers as long as they're not um you know they, they're not they're not to be held liable for content that users post um and they get this protection of like like free speech protections and so you know from there we get the internet that we have today where yeah. you know Facebook and Twitter and Instagram which for many intents and purposes are acting as publishers mm-hmm. right because they are their algorithms are promoting different things. They're sort yeah. of curating things in a way, right? Um, the way that Hopefully, a newspaper yeah. or magazine would, and um, or even a you know an editorial website, right? They're they're giving things different weight. They're sending mm-hmm. things out to different um, groups of people. You know, they're allowing advertisers to specifically target certain kinds of people so that you know. Someone with a particular identity might see a feed that's completely different than someone with another identity, and that can open people up to, like, being targeted with anti-vax content or other Mm -hmm. really harmful, you know, quote-unquote wellness content, um, as well as political content and all kinds of other things. And so, you know, so kind of digging into all this, right, it it just showed me how deeply um embedded wellness, miss, and disinformation are into the social media system and into these algorithmic technologies in general. Cause you know, you have YouTube, which is not officially social media, but it acts in very similar mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. where it's recommending things to you and it's seeing what you like or what you're you're spending your time on and it's driving you further and further down this sort of rabbit hole of extremes, you know, showing you one kind of content and then you can be Like 50 steps down into something really, really extreme, Mm -hmm. like going from, you know, some center right politician's speech into like QAnon, you know, conspiracy theory territory in like however many steps.
1: Yeah, it's Um, terrifying.
0: Terrifying.
1: And I think that this is kind of where, in some ways, your two babies come together, right? This Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) intersection between parenting and wellness culture. And I've heard you talk specifically about the sort of predatory messaging that's directed at new parents. I think that you've even experienced yourself. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I'm wondering if you could speak to what's going on in that space, because I'm not sure if that's something you necessarily cover in the book, but it's, it's obviously very, like I said, that's where your two sort of babies
0: meet. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one thing that I, that I do cover in the book that sort of Speaks to that um, predatory nexus is the anti-vax movement, which mm. has been fomented and enabled by social media and algorithms to, um, you know, get to these levels that we never would have seen. I think without those technologies. Yeah. And unfortunately, specifically, a lot of new parents are targeted, even people who are considering becoming parents, even people who are starting to do searches mm-hmm. around fertility and things like that, will start to see um, increased levels of anti-vax content being suggested to them. Um, I interviewed one woman who is a technology researcher who's actually written and spoken out you know, about this for years, Renee DeResta at um, Stanford University, but she herself is a mom and got interested in all of this when she had given birth to her first child and was looking into cloth diapering and Mm. i think maybe like making her own baby food or something she's not like a super crunchy person she actually doesn't identify as crunchy at all but she says that she you know was looking into these pursuits that are kind of crunchy ish and yeah crunchy um, adjacent crunchy crunchy adjacent or could be part of a very crunchy lifestyle but you know she was she was just sort of interested in them for
1: and let's be real we're all a little crunchy
0: We're all a little crunchy these days, especially. Yeah, like I think it's I mean, oh, my God, that's a whole other thing, too, is like how far down the crunchy rabbit hole do you want to allow yourself to go? And but so, you know, she was she started to be served group recommendations by Facebook for anti-vax groups because of this interest in In cloth. cloth diapering she it was like from cloth diapering to like backyard chickens she was like oh that's cute like let me you know (laughs) like this page related to backyard chickens and then suddenly these anti-vax groups started popping up you know and so she started looking into this um, proliferation of anti-vax communities and and the role that social media has played in that and has now become one of the leading voices kind of speaking out against this Mm. but you know, I think it's really, really interesting to see how quickly that can happen and how these things that we might think of as, you know, parenting choices to even just look into, not necessarily be all in on. But like, mm-hmm. let me, you know, like a group about this and see what or join a group about this or like a page about this and see what, you know, they have to say, what the benefits are, whatever can can lead you down this path where the algorithm thinks you're susceptible. And yeah, Unfortunately, one of the ways that people are kind of the most susceptible, I think, is when they've lost a child, like infant loss is mm. one of the ways it's, I mean, just heartbreaking to think about as mm-hmm. the parent of an infant, you know, like, I can't imagine what these parents are going through and then to be, it's you know, so systematically predatory. targeted, yeah. right? And and these parents who, you know, have lost infants to sudden infant death syndrome or, suffocation from, you know, sleeping, co-sleeping and stuff like that. And then suddenly, you know, you have anti-vax entrepreneurs in their feeds or their messages being like, you know, this was not your fault, which, I mean, who doesn't want to hear that when something so tragic happens and and these parents are blaming themselves and feeling horrible guilt, you know, to to say like, it wasn't your fault, it was the vaccines, right? So they're serving up this just horrible misinformation in a moment where people are incredibly vulnerable and of course that's going to have an effect right and it has an impact even on people who see that who haven't lost a child but are terrified of it like I'm you know constantly terrified of that and so people who are you know parents trying to do the best for their kids like Mm -hmm. looking into all the ways to keep them safe are suddenly made to feel like if a vaccine, you know, touches their child, it's gonna, it's gonna instantly kill them. Like that's yeah. the level of rhetoric. And I talked to some former anti-vaxxers who are now speaking out and in favor of vaccines. Which yeah. I think my favorite kind of person to interview, I think, is like a person who is a former something. You know, like who's, yeah, who's sort I of I don't know. It's just so interesting a to be. Because I'm that way, too. Like, I've gone through some stuff and, you know, come to see things really differently. And I just find it really interesting to see, like, what are people's journeys through this? And I also didn't want to interview any current anti-vaxxers because I didn't want to, you know, promote harmful messages Mm -hmm. in my book. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of get into the psychology of of what drives people into this. and. One of the women I talked to, Heather Simpson, who's now really speaking out against um, the anti-vax movement, you know, said that it started for her when she was even considering having a child. She was having fertility issues. She kind of got into wellness culture that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from there started being served all these anti-vax, all these pieces of anti-vax content. And she got so far down the rabbit hole that she literally thought vaccines were poison and would, you know, kill her child. And... (sighs) I mean, I, I we should probably put a trigger warning on this episode because
1: I 100 like will but. because yeah we we're touching on some really um, difficult difficult subjects but yeah sorry yeah. carry on
0: yeah so I mean just in researching all that I, I started to see like how deep and dark it can get you know and I think yeah. you know it it there are less kind of dark aspects of this that that are the start but that can mm-hmm. easily pull people down these really yeah. extreme paths right yeah. so like for example, like I recently, you know, with the biting stuff, I was talking to my lactation consultant who's wonderful and has helped us so much, but is a little crunchy, you know, and has, has the the ways in which she's crunchy tend towards the sort of herbal remedies and stuff like that. Yeah, the brewer's
1: yeast and all that.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the homeopathic, you know, drops and tinctures and stuff. And, um, so I was looking into it because I, you know, for the book, again, I, I researched homeopathy. A lot of this didn't make it into the book, but has just been backgrounded forming my perspective on things and, and, you know, realizing homeopathy just really doesn't have good evidence behind it and has been um, recommended against by, you know, many scientific and health authorities, which, you know, have their own problems sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I think in many ways are really solid in terms of being able to look at and critique evidence for these alternative, you know, pathways, um, alternative health practices Anyway, so you know, looking into the homeop- homeopathic medicines and seeing that you know they're part of this unregulated or very loosely, mm-hmm. minimally regulated supplement industry, which you know dietary and herbal supplements in the U.S. at least, and I'm not sure how it is in the U.K., but in the U.S., there's almost no oversight of mm-hmm. these of these medications. They can go to market without ever being tested for safety or e- efficacy. You know, just on the the word of the manufacturer. And yeah. the FDA doesn't review them. The Food and Drug Administration doesn't review them for safety or efficacy until someone complains or enough people complain after the fact, after they're on the market and potentially harming, mm-hmm. you know, thousands or millions of people. Um, and then the FDA doesn't have a huge budget for oversight, and there's, you know, many reasons why they don't they don't review many things, and so things can be out there just, you know, causing tremendous harm. Yeah. One of which. Um, unfortunately, is like homeopathic teething products. It was found, mm-hmm. I think about ten years ago that there were levels of detectable levels of deadly nightshade, which is a poison oh in some of these homeopathic teething remedies, and the FDA recommended against using any of them because, you know, you don't want to be poisoning your child, obviously. And I yeah. think it's just so ironic and so um, deeply frustrating to me that, the reason people would gravitate towards those products in the first place is because of the worry about mm-hmm. toxicity of things like Tylenol mm-hmm. or, you know, other sort of more um, standard over-the-counter mm-hmm. remedies. You know, people wanting to do the best for their child and give yeah. them something that's that's going to be less harmful. And to see that, like, because of this lack of regulation, literal poison can be slipped into these products without any sort of oversight Yeah, is just it's just heartbreaking, you know, it's and, really and really, yeah. Ugh, yeah. So that's, that's some of the nexus of these two, these two babies I've been working on.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear you said at the beginning that the, I, I don't know if you were talking specifically about your breastfeeding sort of journey for one of a better word, or, um, the, you know, you're now, at the part where your little one is eating solids, and but you, you said that it was fraught um mm. <laughs> at some point. And I was curious to to hear a little bit more about just your um experiences with feeding, particularly from your background as an intuitive eating counselor, you know, that's what you're really known for, is, is intuitive eating and kind of being on the other side of it now as a, as a parent and, and having, I suppose, witnessed your little one learning to eat and, and kind of what your thoughts are on, you know, some of the things that I know I've said, and, and I think you've maybe said similar things about how, you know, intuitive, we're all born as intuitive features. I kind of get the sense from some of your podcasts that I've listened to recently that you've shifted, you know, how you speak about that a little bit. And I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I think it's so interesting to see it from the perspective of a parent and to see a little baby like actually going through it. Because Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, we're all born as intuitive eaters in the sense that we don't have diet culture messages installed in us, you know, as when we come out. Right. We don't have any of this sense of like needing to eat less or exercise more, like do things to change the size and shape of our body or you know that some foods are good and some foods are bad and that we need to be quote unquote healthy and eat a certain way you know none of those messages come to us until mm-hmm. later until we're socialized into them right so i think mm-hmm. in that sense we're very much all born you know as intuitive eaters in the sense that we're free of the diet mentality and we're also born with innate hunger and fullness cues and you know the ability to like root around and find the nipple on a bottle or a breast and you know, get our food needs met and to cry when we're hungry and, and let people know, you know, let the caregivers know and um, stop when we're full to some extent. But it, it also is like very interesting to see the nuances of that where, you know, a baby will like, you know, babies, it's it's a learning process, I think, for both caregiver and baby to, to learn how to eat, like to learn how to um, latch onto the breast, for example, or to learn how to take a bottle or... Um, to learn, you know, how to eat enough to satisfy them without spitting up. Right. Like sometimes babies are so hungry and taking in so much, but the size of their stomach is just, you know, not there yet. And so they spit up and that's a normal part of the process. Like that's a, you know, I don't like the word normal so much, but I think in this context, I'm just saying like, that's a, that's a part of the process for growing and developing babies is to like learn the capacity of their stomach in that Mm -hmm. way. And I think, I think older
1: kids as well, Mm -hmm. you know, I think from the perspective that that kids need to, in order to learn how to self-regulate, they need to be allowed to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we so often go wrong by when we restrict kids from, let's say, eating sweets and chocolate and things like that, is that they they don't actually learn what feels like too much and what feels uncomfortable. And they they need to they need to be able to overshoot the mark. They need to be able to undershoot the mark because that gives them information. If that makes totally. sense.
0: Totally. Totally. I completely agree and I feel like I've been so much more aware these days of like friends kids who have limited access to sweets at home you know seeing how they interact with them at our house or things like that and you know that that you know my my daughter is very much learning in that way too of like Mm -hmm. you know sometimes undershooting and being hungry again you know shortly after sometimes overshooting and you know having a bit of a tummy ache having some spit up and stuff like that and that that is kind of a beautiful part of the process, that's something that needs to be fostered and allowed and that, you know, it's not like intuitive eating is not as easy as it maybe is made out to be and as maybe Mm -hmm. I've made it out to be in the past for Mm -hmm. babies, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, yeah, they just know what to do. It's like, well, they in some ways there there's definitely instinct there, but there's also some learning and some oral development skills even that have to come into play. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, with solid feeding, too, there's the textures and the, the different flavors and stuff like that that babies have to get used to and sort of learning how to eat in that way versus, you know, just taking in liquid um, nourishment is a whole different process. And, and, you know, seeing seeing my baby be like so excited about food in some some moments and, you know, excited about so many different things, but then also having some things she just really doesn't like and making Mm -hmm. funny faces and not really eating. Like even just last night we were at a friend's house and, you know, hadn't brought solids for her, but my friend had like some yogurt and raspberries and she's like, Oh, should I just make that for her? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Not even Mm -hmm. thinking about how tart and tangy that would be. How like (laughs) my baby had not had something that tangy and she was just making horrible faces and refusing it, but then also super hungry and getting fussy. And, you know, we had to kind of work it out. And then my friend was like, Oh wait, we have these pouches because my older daughter still eats them as a snack. So let's try that. And then it was like, brilliant. Okay. We're, we're satisfied. But you know, having to kind of go through this trial and error of like what foods are going to be satisfying and and how much and how to express hunger, you know, it, it's a little more nuanced and complicated than I think I had realized.
1: Absolutely. And and I I feel very similar kind of being on the other side of it now and and reflecting on some of the things that I might have said before becoming a parent and sort of just giving the impression that that intuitive eating was this, you know, natural, for want of a better word, thing that everyone is capable of um, from, you know, the moment that they're born and maybe not being so considerate of, you know, things like disability or um, neurodivergence or, or some of these other things that can impact feeding on top of just that initial learning curve that everybody has to go through, which you know, I've I've done a lot of training and reading and things around um how, you know, infants and, and children learn how to eat. And, you know, things have completely blown my mind, like the fact that they don't have the oral motor skills of an adult until they're three and a half, which means that they literally cannot chew food in the same way that an adult can until they've been eating for three years and that's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing and and then I, I think another sort of layer of this kind of bringing it back to wellness culture is sort of the messages that parents receive about um what and how much and when their 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 child should eat and there's this real insidious sort of narrative and discourse around you know, kind of this idea of the perfect eater, your your child should be able to eat perfectly and they're gonna eat kale and broccoli and you know they're they're only gonna eat the the so-called you know right amount of food and it just doesn't leave any space for that learning process. And so I think that the the kind of disruption to that, you know, innate instinctive embodied, you know, just ability to to or not ability but that exploration of food that happens in those early years, it kind of gets intercepted by adults and, and we we cause disconnection, I think, so much earlier on even than I, I think I appreciated and realized So from the perspective of even like when we think about infant feeding and parents receiving the message that they need to kind of feed to a schedule or feed mm-hmm. for a certain number of minutes if they're breast or bottle feeding, all the way through to, you know, pressurizing and controlling toddlers to eat or not eat certain foods. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that or you even know what
0: I'm talking about. Oh, God, totally. I, I feel like it has happened. I mean, it it happened almost from the instant she was born for us because, you know, like I said, I I had a traumatic birth experience. I ended up having an unplanned C-section and then complications from that that kept me in the hospital for some extra days and Mm. really was in so much pain that I couldn't nurse. And my milk was, you know, so early in the process anyway. I didn't really have a lot of milk. And so we ended up doing formula kind of from day, you know, maybe day two and did formula for, you know, several weeks and, so I think when we made that decision, it's interesting that you said, you know, you didn't feel a lot of support around breastfeeding in the hospital where you were. I feel like it was almost the opposite with us because I don't know if you have this in the UK, but in the US there's the baby friendly hospital designation. Yeah.
1: It's a world health organization um, designation. Yeah, so it okay. is, it is UK wide, but the difference Christy, is that my baby was incubated in an incubator. Mm. So there was no way that I could feed him in those Got first it. days where i didn't feel supported was twofold I think first of all I was discharged after 12 hours oh
0: my god they didn't
1: give a shit about me Christy I was sitting with a beaten up perineum on a concrete floor because it was COVID and there were no chairs in the waiting room oh my god (laughs) I was just sitting outside the ward it honestly we could devote uh probably a whole episode just to my birth trauma but we're not going to go there so what happened with us is that Someone handed me a syringe and a plastic cup. No, not a syringe, just a plastic cup, like a hundred mil beaker and was like, mm. okay, express colostrum into that. Jeez. And then the other, I mean, there were a few different things. So then nobody told me about the hospital grade pump in, mm. you know, just two doors down from where my baby was lying oh my God. Um, for quite a few days. And I think that would have helped with my milk coming in. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing was just the way that I was treated on the ward while, you know, trying to get feeding established after, you know, we didn't, I didn't get to put him to my breast until a week, maybe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, (laughs) but anyways, that's kind of the the context. We do have the the baby friendly initiative, I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of just flipped on its head. And in fact, One of the first questions that I was asked when I, you know, finally was able to stand up and walk myself through to the NICU was I was given a choice between two different brands of formula. Mm. And so that, even in and of itself, like I was able to register with my like nutritionist brain well it doesn't fucking matter just feed my child right mm-hmm. it doesn't stop trying to get me to buy into some sort of brand loyalty here when my baby <laughs> is lying you know like I said intubated and so like I was able to access that somehow <laughs> through everything else that had happened and get my baby fed but yeah it was, it was almost kind of like an inverse of of what you experienced
0: I suppose totally that oh, god that is so sad and just just I will so put many... all
1: the I will put all the content warnings. On this yeah,
0: yeah, totally. I mean, ugh, there's just so many ways in which we are failed by the healthcare system, and not just conventional medicine, but alternative medicine as well, which mm-hmm. I get into in the book. But mm-hmm. I mean, ugh, so yeah, I, that, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And for me, I think it was it was a little different, but also there are some similarities in yeah. in some ways where, but I think. The biggest, the biggest thing that I'm thinking of, kind of going back to what you were asking about, um, you know, pressure to feed in a certain way yeah. or pressure to, like, make sure your baby doesn't, quote, unquote, overeat or whatever, was that, mm. you know, because I ended up doing formula pretty early on, and I've heard so many horror stories of people in baby-friendly hospitals who had to fight for formula and, like, yes. were like, you yeah. know, my kid isn't getting any nutrition, like, they seem like they're starving, and yet you're not, like, giving me formula, like... Fucking give me formula, you know. And, yeah, they and- they
1: don't even keep it in the hospital. I've heard some some parents have had to like yeah. send their partner out to you know, a shop to go in, and get it. Yeah,
0: I know. Really- I've heard I've heard that experience, too. And I we actually packed some formula just in case for Sorry. that reason. But mm-hmm. thankfully, our hospital was was really good about it. And, you know, pretty quickly when it was evident that I wasn't going to be able to breastfeed, they were like, you know, and I said, I think we should probably do formula. You know, I talked it over with my husband. He was like, yes, let's do this. And, yeah. um, you know, the nurse came by and we said, we think we want to do this. And she's like, great, you know, I'll go get you some. We've got these, you know easy to feed kind of like quick bottles that you don't mm-hmm. even have to mix. It's just prepared and we'll give you nipples mm-hmm. and everything. And it was, it was amazing so that, you know, we had some nurses that were incredible and super supportive of the whole process. Cause not only did this one nurse do that for us, but she also brought in the hospital grade pump and she said, if you want to try cause I had expressed that I really would love to breastfeed. It just was not going to be possible at this point. She's like, you know, let's get you set up on this pump and we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Um, yeah and brought in the lactation consultant, everything. It was great. So that, you know, I think it's, it's so different with different nurses though, because then there's a shift change and we get a different nurse and we see that this one nurse has really specific ideas and sort of anti-formula ideas. Mm -hmm. And she's suddenly like, well, since you're feeding your baby formula, you can't overfeed her. Let's not, you know, I'm like, she's crying. She, I think she's hungry. Like we changed her, we walked her, we burped her, we did all the things like you know, Occam's razor seems like she's hungry. And, and the, you know, can we get some more formula? And this nurse was like, well, you know, you really shouldn't be feeding her more than X amount. And her stomach's too little, you know, she shouldn't be spitting up like blah, blah, blah. It was like so much shame coming from this nurse. And she made some comment about like, you know, her chubbiness, which is just like, what? like, she's not, I mean, Fresh like, out the
1: womb and the right, anti-fat like, rhetoric starts already. Like a few days old. like The other thing that it sounds like is that your instincts were being gaslit as, an, as mm-hmm. a new parent when what you need, you know, immediately postpartum is people to kind of like back you and trust you and,
0: and you know, reassure you that actually you know what you're doing here. Totally. I, I mean, and it was so amazing that we had some nurses that really did that, you know, that yeah. really supported like... Those instincts. And then some others just, you know, I think because of their own fat phobic ideas and, you know, their own relationships with food or whatever it is, you know, buy into diet culture, it was like, You know, just from the get go, like you're only allowed to feed this much because, especially, you know, with this formula, it's like, oh, you know, you're you're already doing a bad thing. You're already giving her bad food, so, you know, we have to be really yeah. careful with this bad food, right? Yeah. It's just when formula is a fucking miracle, like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't have, like, I, ugh, I shudder to think what would have happened if we hadn't had formula, you know. Mm-hmm, so same. like, yeah, so. <sighs> it's. It's so fraught. And I want to say, too, just for anyone listening, because I know the parenting space is so tricky and everybody has their own experience and their own journey with things. And so like this is no shame to anyone for anything they're dealing with or choices they've made. Like I support parents in making any kind of feeding choice that works for them, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just for me, it was, you know, I think formula was so the right the right choice from the beginning. And then we're so lucky that we were able to breastfeed too. And we've been able to, you know, have both experiences, but, um, I think it, yeah, feeding is just so complicated It going back to, you know, again, the sort of ideas about intuitive eating that I didn't really fully understand until being a parent. Like it's, it's not just about your child's instincts. It's about like what's available and what, you know, and, and, it gave me sort of a new appreciation for situations of food scarcity or lack Mm. of food availability and, Mm. and the parents going through the formula shortage that just happened recently too. Like, yeah, that's a
1: whole terrifying, terrifying thing. I remember just kind of watching from here, watching it unfold from the UK and I was like, what the fuck? Like ship some formula. Like we've got loads, take it, please. I know. know. And Yeah, yeah, it it really, really scary. And from what I understand, they are putting measures in place to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. But it just seemed like the response to that was
0: so painfully slow, so slow. Yeah, yeah, I know. And the and you know the shaming responses too of like, well, just breastfeed. Why don't you just breastfeed? It's like, a, if you've been formula feeding, you can't just breastfeed. Like you don't have a milk supply. (laughs) People don't understand
1: basic physiology.
0: (sighs) Ridiculous, ridiculous. And then B, like, you know, a lot of people formula feed because they can't breastfeed or choose not to or, you know, whatever, the breastfeeding isn't going to work for them. So why are mm-hmm. you shaming people for a choice that that they need to make? And this life-saving nutrition for their child is not available. Like, yeah. you know, let's have some empathy for that. Yeah, I... I
1: mean, just just shout out to formula where it has literally saved Probably, I don't even I couldn't even guesstimate how many babies' lives have been I saved by having access. I know it, you know, my child would have starved without it.
0: Yeah. I feel like a lot of us wouldn't be here without formula, you know. Yeah. I yeah, a
1: hundred percent. I feel like you've maybe answered this in in some ways. And I'm I'm almost a little bit afraid to ask you, Chrissy, because I reckon I'm gonna cry. <laughs> but after the birth of your daughter, on your Instagram, you posted that giving birth broke you open in every way imaginable. And I, I'm just really interested to hear, I think you've talked about some of the ways, you know, a traumatic mm-hmm. birth, but I'm just wondering what else, in what other ways you feel that that just kind of
0: cracked you right open. Mm. Yeah. I think I'm going to cry at this too. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I feel like my emotions are just so much more on the surface and that's one way Mm -hmm. that it's happened, you know, is that like, I just, I feel like I went through so much in those early days of, of feeling like, um, a failure in some ways. And I, I wasn't, you know, like Mm. and nobody is, but, you know, having these ideas about how I wanted my birth to go and then having it not go that way. And then Mm. having ideas about breastfeeding that didn't go that way and having sort of a delayed bonding experience with my child, Mm. like, you know, having had this, this idea of like bringing her to the breast and just this beautiful oxytocin release and like instant bonding and that that um what's like the the golden hour that you're promised. Yeah, yeah. that you're promised. Mm-hmm. And we did actually have one one breastfeeding, you know, skin to skin moment when I was first out of surgery, but I was so drowsy and yeah. and there were signs all over the hospital room that were like, Don't fall asleep with your baby. You're gonna suffocate your baby. It was like terrifying. I was Terrified. And my husband had been up for we had had a prodromal labor, too. So I was up for like 72 hours before even getting admitted to the hospital. And then like another 36 to 48 hours of like labor and delivery. So like, you know, we were exhausted. He hadn't slept. So he like Mm -hmm. crashed out on the cot my baby like was just sort of in a blissed out dream space nursing and the nurse got us set up and was like, okay, it seems great. seems like breastfeeding is going to go well. I'm going to give you two some time and mm-hmm. left the room. And so then I'm just like, oh my God, like, what? Well, I, yeah. I have to stay awake. Like what's going to happen? You know? So like from the get go, there's just so much anxiety there. And so, you know, and, and being in the hospital and having like, my husband having to kind of do everything for her because I couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. I was hooked up to like catheters and IVs yeah. and, you know, couldn't move and had the like things on my legs to keep from getting blood clots mm-hmm. and stuff. And um, so he was like changing her and rocking her and feeding her and singing to her and mm-hmm. just like him singing to her in the hospital. Like he had a couple songs that he sang <laughs> that I still can't even like think about. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Because <laughs> oh. like... You know, I wanted I wanted to be part of that, and and I couldn't. And I think that was that's one thing that really like really hit me, and has been really hard to um, overcome. Even though like we have such a great bond now, and it's been so it's been so lovely. But you know, I think also I had to go back to work after three months, and yeah. so I had this incredibly emotional you know first probably 8 to 10 weeks i didn't officially have postpartum depression i had you know mm-hmm. my therapist said it was like kind of an extended baby blues but it just right. it sort of went on beyond when the supposed I mean, baby they call blues that trauma, right i think so too <laughs> yeah yeah and it's you know on top of existing ptsd it's been there's been yeah. a lot to recover from um and then i had such a difficult time going back to work because, you know, even though I'm right, I'm working from home, I'm in the same house, I can pop over and breastfeed her, you know, whenever she's hungry, just like the getting back and forth between, you know, the mom space and yeah. the mom part of my brain and the workspace and this person that I was before I gave birth that I don't even recognize in some ways, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I mean, not even just physically, but that's, you know, that's a tiny bit in there too. But like this person that, you know, was so driven and able to work so hard and efficiently and effectively and like get all my stuff done and, you know, now feeling just kind of like not very good at what I'm doing and or not very Mm -hmm. efficient and productive Mm -hmm. and all of the sort of capitalistic pressures Mm -hmm. that come with that. Right. And the and the feeling of like. You know, I'm the primary earner right now, and my husband Mm -hmm. is the primary child care. And, like, there's so much on my shoulders that, you know, if I can't do it, my brain goes to these, like, anxious places of, like, we're going to lose our house and our food. And, you know, like, Mm -hmm. it just goes to, like, Mm -hmm. really er, not true beliefs when I really sit down and think about it and look at it. I'm like, okay, this we have savings. We're okay. We're not going to, you know, it's not going to happen. But just having a child, I think... Um, sort of unlocked a new level of anxiety in a way of, mm-hmm. of like this existential like and like protecting you know needing to protect her in so many ways that sometimes mm-hmm. I feel incapable of and also just like you know I think it has given me more empathy for everyone and I I try to hold on to that all the time you know it's sometimes it, it, I think it it was so on the surface like right when I was coming back from maternity leave because I'm just like, you know, everybody is someone's baby, right? Like everybody was this helpless once and Mm -hmm. everybody hopefully had someone who, you know, felt some sort of way about them, like a, a, a maternal or paternal or parental kind of instinct. And I don't know, that just, that has when I really like tap into that again, I, re- I think it's given me so much more empathy for everyone in every situation, you know, even people who are causing harm, right? Even people mm-hmm. who, um, you know, are perpetuating diet culture, right? Even people yeah. who are, because I, I have always tried and I have always, you know, really attempted to live by this notion that like I'm not out to attack individuals. I'm out to... Um, critique the yeah, message, system. not
1: the messenger, right?
0: Right. I'm, I'm critiquing a system. And, you know, there are people who are participants in that system willingly and unwillingly. And I was one of them. You know, I was a dietitian who practiced in the traditional weight centric model and yeah. um, was trained in that. And so I, you know, we all live in glass houses, right? I think I, I couldn't um, fault people for their participation in diet culture mm-hmm. to a certain point, you know, then again, I would, I would think like, but these people who are really profiting off of it and who really mm-hmm. should know better, you know, like uh, I, I couldn't help but feeling anger towards them. And I think in a way, giving birth has just helped me soften mm-hmm. all of that, you mm-hmm. know, like I, mm-hmm. I think, I and I wrote about this in my first book, like the importance of anger, you know, the importance of going through that angry phase and getting angry at the system and angry at diet culture, maybe even angry at the people who perpetuated it in your life as much as you might try, you know, to forgive them. Ultimately, it's like you might have to have a phase of, of anger towards them. And I think, you know, for me personally, in my own healing from disordered eating, maybe that was, you know, a part of my Stridency in my writing and my podcasting and my work was like me having that angry phase and having to go Mm -hmm. through that angry energy of getting out that that you know and externalizing right the anger towards the system and the culture and the structures rather than Mm -hmm. turning them in on myself as Mm -hmm. I had for so long as so many of us us are conditioned to do. But I don't know if maybe now I'm in a different phase and if like you know again sort of feeling like giving birth like broke me open. It's like. Mm it's, it kind of released some of that anger and made me like Mm -hmm. more soft and vulnerable and, you know, just less, less angry and less kind of, um, you know, I don't have such tightly balled up fists anymore, even when Mm -hmm. I'm critiquing structures and systems that are harmful.
1: First of all, thank you for sharing all of that with us. And I think we don't, talk about what giving birth is really like because what it's really like is everything that you just spoke to like we 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 talk about some of the physical changes and you know snapback culture and, and all of that stuff but I think this I really resonated with this idea of like our emotions just being so close to the surface and just having like this just feeling this enormous amount of empathy for <laughs> even the shit of humans you know I remember I was like I was looking at the news the other day and there was this article about these co-joined twins that were separated and there was like a picture of them just lying next to each other holding hands and I was just like gosh oh. <laughs> For like hours afterwards, my husband yes. kept looking at me like, Are you okay? Like, they're fine. The twins are fine. Like, <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, but it's just like things like that get to me in a way oh, that, yeah. like, before I became a parent, it, like, that just wouldn't have registered in the same way. I would have been like, Oh, that's sweet. But you know? mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I really, really feel that. And I think it's just so valuable to have these conversations. Because I know that a lot of the folks listening to this podcast are are parents too. And I I think it's really hard because because we don't have these conversations, because we don't talk about becoming a parent in this way, that it's really difficult to access the language and the vocabulary to express that experience. And I just, when I saw that post, I knew exactly what you meant. Like, I couldn't mm. quite, I mean, you've said it really, really eloquently, but I knew I could feel exactly what you meant without even having had a conversation or knowing any of the details of what you went through. I knew what you meant. And I don't experience that very often with, you
0: know, mom's parent stuff.
1: Mm. <laughs> so,
0: Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot because I I have struggled so much with the language around it, too, and with like expressing anything that doesn't feel cliched. And I think it's Mm -hmm. cliched for a reason, right? Like this idea of like, you know, having a child is like walking around with your heart outside your body. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's actually sort of a beautiful sentiment, but it's I think it's become very cliched and sort of parenting circles. And that sort of gets at a little bit, but it doesn't quite capture, you know on a sort of similar thread, I've,
1: I, I read someone, t- uh, they, they, they'd written that like giving birth is like giving birth to your own heart. And I was like, mm. oh my God, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah, but you, you have, yeah, in that sentiment and, and everything that you've just said here, you, you, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. So thank you for mm. kind of opening up that conversation because I, I don't think some people are as kind of brave to have that, um, to, you know,
0: just put that out there in the way that you did. So, um, yeah, it really struck a chord with me. Thank you so much. I, I thank you for like facilitating this too, because interestingly, although I, I mentioned a little bit about my experience on my own podcast and in my own newsletter, I kind of, you know, back when it's just me talking into a mic on my own I don't really you know I think it's there's something about having someone empathetic listening asking questions and you're such a good interviewer you know to to be able to like draw out this experience um, I think was really helpful
1: well thank you for for being vulnerable and sharing it I, I really do appreciate that and with all of that in mind I have a really important question I think for you Given everything that you've been through, this feels really pertinent.
0: Who or what is nourishing you right now? Mm, That's such a good question. Thank you. Um, I think my husband, first and foremost, and my baby, you know, like the love I have for them. And I mean, the love that, you know, anyone who's been a parent, just like, you know, seeing the look. That your baby gives you the the smiles, the the way they light up when you come into a room like that is Mm. such nourishment. And my husband, like literally and emotionally, just (laughs) every day, like you know, bringing me lunch while I'm working, giving me you know the emotional support and the the sounding board and the really insightful feedback that you know keeps me going. Mm -hmm. You know, I think like family has just become such a such a bigger part of my life in so many ways. I knew like growing my family would, you know, would of course make family more important, but I haven't, I didn't really understand in what ways Mm -hmm. until now. And Mm -hmm. it is just giving me such, such an anchor and such, such joy, you know, I think too, like being offline as much (laughs) as I can. I mean, I use, I've had to use the internet a lot for book research but I've done it in a way where I'm like treating it as a library like I'm yeah. looking up things that are interesting to me I'm going down you know deep dives of research that I find important and helpful and I don't have I mean I I am officially on social me- like technically on social media but I don't really post um, mm-hmm. much at all anymore other than you know when I came back from maternity leave and occasional things to kind of promote my work and stuff but I'm not spending time on there. I'm not scrolling. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to just, you know, spend time in the real world too, like the physical world, like walking Mm -hmm. around my neighborhood, spending time with neighbors and friends locally. And, you know, I know that's like, that's such a different experience now post-COVID or not even post-COVID, in COVID, in the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and for people who are still having to be super careful because of disabilities and things like that, I think it's, you know, not everybody has the the luxury the privilege to be able to spend time with people in person still and mm-hmm. i feel yeah. that, that very acutely and i feel grateful that you know even with multiple chronic illnesses i'm still able to like be out there and be social and you know the vaccine has given me enough antibodies that i'm not um immunocompromised mm-hmm. and stuff so mm-hmm. but yeah i think i think just you know trying to really be present with my physical life mm-hmm. <laughs> has been a huge nourishment for me um and just kind of stripping away you know and also like I want to acknowledge the huge privilege speaking of privilege of like having been able to build a career that is largely online and mm-hmm. social media has been part of that so I have a very complex relationship with it for sure and like it has not been good for my mental health. I can say yeah. that categorically now. It has not mm. been good for my mental health, and it, mm-hmm. that's been the case for years. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's been at least five years, if not, you know, nine or ten, that I've been struggling with my relationship with social media and the way that it affects my mental health. And yeah. to kind of have come, you know, all this way now to see like the depth of the problems with it, and to say like it's not just me whose mental health that is it's affecting um and to step away has been really really nourishing
1: yeah yeah I'm it's it's so complicated because I rely on social media for you know promoting my podcast and and other things Mm -hmm. and at the same time I'm this well in August I've given myself a complete break from it and I'm just feeling the All the benefits of of not being on there, so yeah, I can hard relate to everything that you're talking
0: about. Yeah, so challenging to have to have to rely on it for business, and yet to be in this just minefield of you know, the algorithm wants us to be activated and anxious and angry because it keeps us, you Mm -hmm. know, keeps us riveted.
1: And this is why I'm so excited about having the Substack newsletter because it's 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 like having You know, when you get really exciting post, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what Substack is for me. Like it's getting, it's like getting a letter from a friend, Mm. even though that's not, it's not exactly what it is, but it feels just much more enriching in a way Mm -hmm. that social media doesn't. And I, I don't have to kind of like deal with all this like aspiration, you know, like highly uh, manufactured content mm-hmm. that makes me feel really bad.
0: So totally. um,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I really hear what you're saying on that. The last question I have for you, Christy, and this is kind of a little segment where we share a recommendation. What are you snacking on right now? And it, it doesn't have to be an actual snack. It can just be <laughs> something fun that you want
0: to recommend mm. to the listeners. I mean, this is... Ugh maybe you know who knows problematic and uh, also not available probably anywhere in the everywhere in the world but um well two things uh one is better call Saul, the TV show. It's, oh, yeah, it's actually is it good? really it's so good. I am obsessed. And I I didn't watch Breaking Bad for a long time because I thought it was going to be violent and I don't like violent shows and just, you know, whole thing, but ended up watching it and loving it, but I think Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad. I'm oh, going to really? ruffle some feathers there by saying that. That's just my opinion. Okay. Um good to don't, know cuz I've not never... at me, bro. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You won't be on social media anyway. Tomorrow. I guess. I guess people are gonna. Yeah. No.
0: Uh, yeah. For me personally, it's just a better show to. It, it, like, it's not as violent, and it's not. I don't have to sort of contend with all the like nervous system activation mm-hmm. that I had with Breaking Bad. Like, there's mm-hmm. still some of that, but it's also like just a really fun, delicious romp in some ways. Weird. <laughs> okay. Weird of that. Weird for me to say that, but. Um, so there's that. There is. This is like totally weird and tangential, but I am doing vision therapy. I learned that I have a visual disorder that like like a binocular vision dysfunction because I've had a long-standing for probably 5 years phobia of driving on the highway and oh. I get so anxious out of nowhere for no like there's no cars around me, big open road and suddenly I'm just like, and I slow down and I can't do it and I get sweaty and like oh. heart racing. I'm like, you know, anxious even thinking about it. And I learned that it's because I have this binocular vision dysfunction where my eyes don't like focus properly in and and it's especially relevant in like high speed situations. My brain can sort of uh, what's the word like um, correct for it in kind of everyday life. But if I'm like speeding down the highway, it's like too much. Um, And so I'm doing vision therapy and wearing special glasses and like it's really changed my life i feel like i'm really i don't want to oversell it or anything for anyone who might be listening or wanting to go through it but like the visual therapy exercises are kind of fun and interesting (laughs) and like it's it's helping me see better it's helping me like i i have gone on the highway a few times without as much panic and um yeah i don't know that's not like particularly a snack i guess it's like kind of work but also it's just it's giving me like freedom so it feels like a like a relief in some way.
1: That's so interesting. I'm, 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 I bet that like really resonates with a lot of people. Like I, I don't drive in the UK, but living in the States, I can really attest to the panic of getting on a highway. Like Yeah. Even just hearing you talk about it, like (laughs) felt my heart rate getting up. Right? They're terrifying. It's so scary. It's so so scary. So with like factoring in the vision side of things as well, I can't even imagine how terrifying that was. So I'm really glad. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm trying to talk about it. Trying to talk about it with people too, because I feel like I know a lot of people who have these phobias of highway driving who mm. just don't do it and like it happens to a lot of people as they get older and my doctor said that like aging is a is a real factor and a lot of mm. people have this you know underlying maybe um, genetic tendency towards like binocular dysfunction anyway but it gets sort of triggered as you get older and you know many people don't know they have it so I'm like who knows who's listening who might benefit from this. And I just discovered it on some random deep dive into Google for like, you know, help with panic attacks on highways. So oh, wow. maybe that'll help someone else. Who knows? And that's
1: so interesting that that's like the thing. Yeah, that it was. Wow. Right. It's it's wild. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people going to be going to their opticians. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll tell you my thing real quick. So mine is a kid's book. And I think it's written By a UK-based author, but I will provide a link so that you can get it internationally if if anyone wants to. And it's actually part of a book roundup for kids zero to five of like body affirming books that I'm doing Mm -hmm. on the newsletter next week. But I thought I would just give it a little shout out now because it's so cute and my two-year-old loves it. So it's called What Happened to You? And it's about a little boy called Joel who has one leg. And basically the story is the kids at the playground keep asking joe like what happened to you and they come up with all these ridiculous reasons as to why he only has one leg like did a lion bite it off did did it drop down the toilet and like all of these things and throughout the book you can you can kind of see joe getting like more and more upset and about the fact that Like he just wants to play his little pirate game and he wants the kids to play with him, but they just keep asking him ridiculous questions about where his leg is. And eventually they kind of just kind of connect over their differences and play and do kid things. And it's just this really sweet story, I think, to open up conversations about disability and ableism with kids And what I really appreciate is that it was it was written by a guy who's a dad who has one leg and he goes into a lot of depth at the the back of the book, giving parents pointers for how to navigate conversations with your children about disability and really just normalizing body diversity and you know sometimes people have accidents that mean that they become disabled some people are born disabled and just how do you navigate these conversations with your kids so it's just a really cute book and it's really beautifully illustrated as well so it's called what happened to you and it's by james catchpole and i'll link to it in the show notes
0: oh that sounds wonderful i'm
1: definitely gonna check that out it's very cute having had a kid has really like enabled my (laughs) my obsession with buying books to a whole Mm -hmm. new level. So I'm like surrounded by them and I'm not complaining. Christy, before you go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of your work and more importantly, how they can find out about the new book when it's ready for um, pre-order?
0: Yeah, thank you. I don't know, depending on when this comes out, it might be by then, but if not, you can just, or at any time, you can um, find out more about the new book at my website, christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap, it's called. And right now I just have a sign-up form to get on my newsletter to find out more when the book is available for pre-order, but soon there will be links there for pre-order as well. And then just to learn more about me and my work in general, you can go to my website, christyharrison.com Uh, My podcast is called Food Psych, and you can find that wherever you're listening to this. And yeah, maybe don't find me on social media because I'm not (laughs) going to be spending much time there. But if you want, you can look through the stuff I posted previously.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Christy, especially, you know, when you're doing book edits and, you know, being caught in that, you know, that space between being pulled between baby and work. I really, I know that. Feeling. So thank you for being here and thank you for speaking so openly about your experiences. It has felt like a really nurturing conversation. So thank you.
0: It has for me too. Thank you so much for creating the space for it. It was a nice break from all my work. So thank you. Thanks, Christy.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another? Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter, where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome to. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer, and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work and I'll catch you next week.